Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon. Get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon's offering you 15% off all their products. And here's all you've got to do to get the deal. Go to buyraycon.com gold. And today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Earlier this morning, we got the government's official read of the consumer price index in the month of August. And the consensus was for a 0.4% rise in the headline number 0.3 if you just look at the core stripping out food and energy and that would have followed a 0.5 percent rise in the prior month which by the way exceeded estimates during the prior month and a 0.3 percent prior month increase in the core now over the preceding eight reports every one had exceeded estimates going back to december of 2020. And of course, I spoke about the producer price index on my last podcast, which came in at up 0.7 for August. That was also higher than what had been expected. So we continue to get inflation numbers that were higher than expected. And so maybe a lot of people by now were expecting the August number to also be above expectations. And people were pleasantly surprised by the fact that we finally got a break in that the August number came in cooler, not hotter than what had been expected. So instead of a rise of 0.4, we only got a rise of 0.3. And in fact, if you strip out food and energy, I guess the news was even better for those of you who don't eat or use energy. The increase in prices was just 0.1 and not 0.3. But let me just focus on the headline number, the 0.3, because a lot of people were very relieved to see this number and they held it out as, oh my God, this validates the fact that yes, the Fed was right after all, inflation is transitory. You see, we've already got a number that was lower than expected. Look, one month does not transitory make. First of all, 0.3% in one month in and of itself is still a lot of pricing pressure because if you annualize 0.3, well, that's almost 4% a year. So if we got this good number 12 months in a row, that's a 4% gain in consumer prices, which is almost double what the Fed claims it wants, which is a rate slightly above 2%. Well, 4% isn't slightly above 2%. It's almost double 2%. So this is not a great number in and of itself. But of course, if you put it in its proper context, it's still a horrible number. Look at the inflation year over year 
and year to date. So year over year, the gain in the CPI is 5.3%. And more significantly, if you annualize the year to date increase in the first eight months of 2021, which would include the August 0.3, you're looking at a annualized rate of 6.3% for CPI. So that's more than triple the Fed's 2% target. So I don't see how getting a slight amount of relief in that the number wasn't as bad as it could have been for one loan month, I would not get excited and prematurely write an obituary for inflation, especially if you look at how understated rents shelter that component of the CPI continues to be. I think the increase in owner's equivalent rent was 0.2 on the month. And this is ridiculous because if you look at the year-over-year actual increase, I think housing prices are up close to 20%, 19%. I mean, one of the biggest years ever. I think maybe 2004, 2005 might be the only years that were comparable or slightly bigger. And that was during the peak of the prior housing bubble. And rents are up, I think, at least 13% year over year. So for the government to claim that housing costs are only up 2 or 3% year over year, that is ridiculous. And it is artificially suppressing the CPI rate because that is such a big component. Shelter is a third of the index. And that third, that number is much lower than it should be if we actually plugged in real home prices or actual rents that people are really paying, not the rents that the government is pretending people are paying, then the numbers would be much, much higher. So take this 0.3% with a grain of salt. I'm sure the actual increase, if it was more honestly measured, would have been even higher. And of course, all of these CPI numbers that we get every month are dishonest in that they don't really take into account the true extent to which prices are rising. But, you know, as much as we're seeing these gains in consumer prices, at least the ones that the government admits to, they're still much smaller than the gains we're seeing on the producer level. I mentioned on the last podcast that if you annualize the increase of producer prices in the first eight months of the year, you get an annualized rate of 10.5%. So that's four full percentage points higher than the CPI. So the question is, how much longer are companies going to eat this diminution in their margins? I mean, we just got news, I think, yesterday from 3M. They came out pre-market and warned that margins were under pressure because they said their prices were rising much more than they thought, and the increases are continuing for longer than they thought. And I've been saying this on this podcast all year that businesses like 3M have been reluctant to pass on the full extent of their cost increases to the consumer. They've been hoping that it was transitory and that they didn't want to raise prices if they were just going to roll them back. I mean, it's a big deal to change all of your pricing. And so a lot of businesses wanted to hold the line, especially if they didn't think their competitors were going to raise prices. They didn't want to lose out on some business permanently. If they just could eat some higher costs temporarily and ride out the storm, they were willing to do it. But I think all of that is going to change in 2022, because if there is no real evidence that what we saw in 2021 was transitory, if none of these price increases that they're experiencing in their costs, if they don't get rolled back, well, then they're going to have to start passing on the hikes. In fact, they're going to have to make up for some of the money they lost in 2021 with even bigger price hikes in 2022. And all of this is coming. And by the way, when I keep talking about transitory, everybody has to keep in perspective how much the Fed has changed the definition of transitory since the beginning. Because when they first started talking about transitory, they meant temporary. They were talking about there are these supply bottlenecks due to the reopening. And because of this, there is a temporary increase in prices. And so we're seeing this transitory inflation because prices are temporarily elevated but that once the reopening happens and the bottlenecks are relieved, right, they're unclogged, 
then prices are going to go back down to where they were before this transitory period of inflation temporarily caused them to go much higher. So people were looking forward to some relief that prices would come back down after the transitionary period was over. But the Fed at some point altered that definition. And then they started describing transitory as meaning the rate of inflation is transitory, not the price increases. The price increases are permanent. It's just the rate that's transitory. Meaning if we go through a transitory period where inflation is hotter than expected, and let's say that transitory period is two years. Let's say it's 2021 and 2022. And let's say if during those two years, prices go up by 15%, right? Let's say the average increase, what is that? 7.5% a year, something like that. Maybe 6% one year, whatever, 8%. But it adds up to 15% increase. What the Fed is saying transitory means is after two years, if the inflation rate reverts back to 2%, and then in the future, every subsequent year is just 2% a year, then that meets the Fed's definition of transitory because the accelerated 7 8% inflation, that only was with us for a couple of years, and then we went back to the 2% per year, except those big price increases that we were promised were transitory are going to be with us for the rest of our lives. And we're constantly going to be adding to them at a rate of 2% a year. Of course, if we're lucky, I don't believe that the rate is going to revert back to 2%. I think it's going to stay above 2% indefinitely. I think it's going to be way above 2%. But even if the Fed were right, Americans have a permanent reduction in their standard of living if everything is now 15% more expensive. Now, there are some Americans that are receiving increase in their wages. Wages are going up, not to the degree that prices are going up. So for some people the net impact is lessened by their higher incomes, but the value of their savings got destroyed if they had any savings. And of course, remember, a lot of people live on fixed incomes. They have pensions, annuities, things like that. They get no real adjustment to this huge shock to the pricing system. So they have to suffer the full impact because they don't have rising incomes. They have a fixed income and all they have is rising costs. There's so much going on in the world today. There's a lot of news that you want to keep on top of. There's also a lot of added stress. And what better way to relieve some of the stress than by listening to some pleasant music, whether you're wearing them to work out, wind down, listen to some music, or catch up on some of your favorite podcasts. Raycons are your go-to for audio on the go. And that's why I've teamed up with Raycon so that you can get a special 15% off your Raycon order by going to buyraycon.com slash gold. With their new everyday earbuds, the look, feel, and sound is better than ever. With an improved rubber oil look and feel and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these buds will impress you even before you put them in your ears and start listening. And you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. You get pure mode for podcast listening, blues, and instrumentals. You get balanced mode, podcast listening, rock, and heavy metal, and bass mode for your hip-hop, EDM, and your reggae. There's also the all-new awareness mode when what you need to listen to are your surroundings instead. And Raycons offer 8 hours of playtime and 32 hours of battery life. There's even a built-in mic that allows you to take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons started half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 40-day happiness guarantee. And right now, my listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com gold. That's buyraycon.com gold to save 15% on Raycons. But the big divergence that we're still seeing between producer prices and consumer prices suggests to me that we're just seeing the beginning when it comes to the pain for the consumer that the producers like 3M and all these other companies that have been announcing or warning on their profits due to rising costs, 
they are going to look to recoup those diminished margins by increasing their prices. And the price increases are going to stick because all of their competitors are in the same boat. Everybody is going to be raising prices. And if it means that consumers have to cut back on what they buy, well, that's what it means because there's no other way for the businesses to provide these goods and services unless they pass on these rising costs. But of course, the real culprit for the rising costs is the government creating inflation. Yet I continue to read all of these articles, again, blaming it all on supply shortages, widespread supply shortages across all industries. There's not any one industry in particular that seems to have been struck by these supply shortages. It's pretty much across the economy. There's supply shortages of everything. And you would think that that in and of itself would let the people writing these articles know that maybe there's more to it. I mean, there can't be a shortage of everything. How can everything be in short supply? And the truth of the matter is, it's really a surplus of money that is the problem, not so much a shortage of stuff, because there's always a shortage of stuff when you print too much money. But to really think about it, I know I've explained it before, but just to kind of reiterate it, normally, the way demand comes into existence is through the contribution to supply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People work. They help produce goods. They help provide services. In exchange, they earn money. Now they earn money and they can spend that money on the goods and services that they helped produce or provide. They don't have to buy the identical goods and services. They're just buying some. They helped fill up this bag of goods and services with some goods and services and they reached into the bag and they grabbed something. It might not have been what they put in, but they put in something and now they're taking out something. Somebody else may pull out what they put in. But if you're talking about a bunch of people just sitting at home, doing no work whatsoever, contributing nothing into that bag of goods and services, and then the government sends them a check, in fact, sends them an even bigger check than what they were earning when they were helping to produce goods and services. And now they take their hand and they reach into that bag to pull out goods and services and they put nothing in. Obviously, there's not going to be enough stuff in that bag, especially when you have millions of hands that put nothing into the bag, reaching in to grab something. And so the only thing that can happen is that prices go up. That's how the market adjusts when you have all this new demand, but no increase in supply. You have to ration the supply with a higher price. If everybody who was buying stuff was also producing stuff, that wouldn't be a problem. Now, of course, Americans are used to buying stuff without producing it because we have these huge trade deficits. And so normally it's no problem. We just print up a bunch of money and then we buy what foreigners produce, except foreigners had COVID too. Foreigners weren't producing as much because they were at home under quarantine. They were under lockdown. So the ability of foreign producers to supply Americans with the goods that we don't produce is diminished. Now, that would be fine if we didn't have all this money that we were printing to buy it with. But the Fed is printing up all this money to buy stuff that foreigners didn't even make. So what do we do? We're bidding up the price of what they did make. And of course, not only is the price of producing all that stuff going way up, the price of shipping it all in here 
has gone way up because our government has printed so much money. We've printed more money than governments, let's say, in other countries. So Americans are going on this global shopping spree. We want to buy a lot more stuff than other people. Well, if the factories are in Asia, but all the spending is in America, well, you got to ship that stuff over to America. So there's more things that they want to export so Americans can buy them, and that is straining the capacity of the entire shipping industry. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the containers. But the problem isn't a shortage of containers and shipping capacity. The problem is we have too much money. I mean, you're never going to have an unlimited amount of stuff. That's why the emphasis on growing an economy has to be on increasing production by capital investment and savings and other consumption. You can have more stuff. You can't just focus on demand. You can't just print money and give it to people and then be surprised when there's nothing to buy because they didn't make anything. I mean, if it was that easy, if all you had to do is print money, then Zimbabwe would have been a smashing success story because they certainly had no problem printing trillions and handing it out to the people. The problem was they were printing a lot of money, but the people weren't producing a lot of stuff. So there was nothing for the money to buy. But of course, Mubage could have simply blamed all the problems in Zimbabwe on supply shortages. Hey, the problem is we don't have enough stuff. We have these widespread supply shortages. Of course, right? What else would you expect when you're printing all this money? And what else would you expect in America, except so many people who are writing these articles. And as I pointed out in my last podcast, even in the beige book, when you have these regional Fed banks noticing all of these supply shortages and talking about them as problematic, but also pointing to them as proof that the inflation is transitory, not a one of these regional banks is pointing a finger at money supply. Nobody even mentions money supply. We have a record increase in the money supply, and nobody wants to say that that is in any way responsible for these big increases in prices, even though guys like Milton Friedman got famous for saying inflation is everywhere and anywhere a monetary phenomenon, which of course, by definition, it is. And if you have an old enough dictionary, that is exactly the way the word inflation is defined. So how you can write about a huge inflation problem and completely overlook the elephant in the living room, meaning all the inflation, all the money supply that's being printed, obviously you're not going to put your finger on the real cause, which of course is not what the government wants to do. The Federal Reserve and the government don't want to accept responsibility for inflation. They don't want to talk about inflation being an expansion of the money supply because then it's obvious Who's causing it? Because it's the Fed that's expanding the money supply. But when they're trying to blame it on supply shortages, when you have people in the Biden administration wanting to launch investigations of the beef industry or the poultry industry because they want to know why they're gouging the consumer, right? It's because they're trying to deflect the blame of inflation from themselves to private industry that is simply trying to survive in the inflationary environment that the government has created. They're not just raising prices because they want to, they're raising prices because they have to. Remember, businessmen always prefer to cut prices because if they can cut prices, they can sell more stuff and they can make more money through greater volume. I went over the story of Henry Ford and the production line and how the price of automobiles went down by 70% during the 1920s, during a booming period of the economy, that economic boom didn't cause car prices to go up. It was falling car prices that helped sustain the economic boom. It was all the extra money that people had to spend because cars were so much cheaper. And because more people got cars, they became more productive and more efficient. And all of that helped to power the roaring 20s. But the prices went down by 70% and Henry Ford made a fortune selling cars for less money because he sold a lot more cars when the price of the car went down. So businessmen want to make more money. And the way you make more money is you sell more stuff. And the way you sell more stuff is you figure out how to lower prices. So the fact that these companies are raising prices when they'd prefer to lower them, it's not because they want to, it's because they have to. Because if they don't raise their prices, they're going to operate at a loss because their cost of production, instead of going down as a result of capitalism and efficiencies and economies of scale, is going up 
as a result of the inflation that the Federal Reserve is creating, and they have no choice but to pass it on. And now, by the way, consumers are clearly starting to expect a lot more inflation. I think we got that news yesterday of consumer expectations for inflation. For the year ahead, consumers are now expecting 5.1 something. I forget the exact amount, inflation. Maybe it's 5.15, 5.18. But this was the highest in the history of this survey. And I'm not really sure how many years back it goes, but this is the most inflation consumers have been expecting since they began keeping these statistics. And I think even more importantly than that, if you look at the inflation rate that consumers expect over the next three years, that rate is 4%. So to the extent that you think it's transitory and it's only going to be around for one year, well, the consumer doesn't think that because the consumer is anticipating 4% inflation on average over the next three years. That too is a record in the history of this particular survey. But Jerome Powell already told Congress that the main thing the Fed is watching is consumer expectations. And the Fed wants to make sure that those expectations remain anchored at 2%. Well, clearly they're unanchored. I mean, they've already drifted up to 4%. Where's the anchor? It doesn't exist. And if the Fed continues to look the other way, these expectations are going to drift higher and higher and higher. In fact, the longer the Fed waits to acknowledge the inflation problem and do something about it, the further behind the curve it falls. And then if they wait too long, they can't do anything. They're so far behind, they can never catch up because in order to fight off inflation, you have to get out in front of it. And in order to get out in front of inflation, you have to have your interest rates that are higher than your inflation rate. And so how is the Fed going to do that? It is impossible to do that. And as soon as the markets acknowledge the impossibility of fighting inflation, that's when you're really going to start to see it reflected in the exchange rate of the dollar and the price of gold. And again, by the way, counterintuitively, once again, although not if you've been listening to this podcast, the price of gold was down, I think about six or seven or eight dollars, something like that, just before the inflation numbers came out because I think gold traders were bracing for a hotter number because we had gotten eight consecutive months in a row where the CPI was above expectations. So I think more people were expecting that to happen this time. They were expecting it to be above expectations, which in and of itself may not be possible because if you expect it to beat expectations, well, then the expectations are actually higher. Maybe they call that, I think, a whisper number. But there are some people thinking that the number would actually beat the whisper number, whatever that number was. So the markets were bracing for worse than expected news on inflation. And when the number came out lower than expected, that started a gold rally. Gold immediately rallied into positive territory, up a few bucks, and then it rallied again. And it was up, I think, at the highs about maybe $13, $14. I think we closed up about $12, back above 1800 At 18.04, gold stocks added to yesterday's gains. By the way, yesterday gold was relatively quiet, very small move, but we had a very big move up in the mining stocks. I mean, some of these beaten down stocks were up 8 to 10% yesterday on a very, very small move in the price of gold. And I think the reason that happened is I've been pointing this out on the podcast. Those gold stocks had been going down quite a bit even though the price of gold hadn't gone down at all. So gold stock investors were anticipating a sell-off in the price of gold that never materialized. And I think some of the people that had been anticipating this sell-off in gold finally decided to buy back those gold stocks that they sold because the sell-off in gold that they thought was going to happen never actually materialized. And so I think that's what sparked the rally. We'll see if the low is in uh, for those stocks, but I think it did mark a potential turning point. We'll see if we can continue to build on these gains. Same thing happened to the dollar. The dollar was in positive territory before we got the better than expected inflation news, right? Lower number. And then the dollar immediately turned around and the dollar index closed down on the day off the lows, but still negative on the day. And I think what helped the dollar later in the day was the big sell-off in the stock market because initially the Dow Jones was positive on this good news. And when the Dow was positive, that's when the dollar was near its lows. And then the market sold off. The Dow closed down 
almost 300 points. And I think the sell-off in risk assets did result in money flowing back into the dollar. And so the dollar was able to recover most of what it had lost as a direct consequence of the inflation numbers being lower than expected. But again, intuitively, this wouldn't make sense because really by definition, inflation is the dollar losing purchasing power. It's a measure of how rapidly the dollar is losing value. So you shouldn't want to buy dollars more if you find out that it's losing value faster than you thought, right? And you shouldn't want to sell dollars if you find out that it's not losing value as fast as you thought. But that's what always happens. And again, the reason for that is when investors see worse than expected inflation news, they assume that that means the Fed is going to fight that inflation. So they're factoring in a tighter monetary policy as a result of higher inflation. And that's why they want to buy the dollar. That's why they want to sell gold on anticipation of tighter money, of higher interest rates. Well, when they realize that waiting for the Fed to raise rates will be like waiting for Godot, something that's never going to happen. It doesn't matter how bad these inflation numbers get. Again, at some point, the markets are going to have to see higher than expected inflation as bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold because that's exactly what it is. It's only these false expectations that the Fed is going to put out this fire that causes the opposite reaction. When they realize they can't put out the fire, in fact, they're going to add fuel to the fire and make it bigger, well, then you're going to see the price of gold explode and the value of the dollar implode. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance. Before, if you wanted to get life insurance, you had to drive across town, sit through a sales pitch, fill out tons of paperwork, and then wait six to eight weeks to find out if you're even approved. Not to mention agents trying to bundle your life insurance with other insurance products, auto insurance, property casualty insurance. But now with Ladder, you can get life insurance hassle-free without leaving home. And when you apply for $3 million or less in coverage, it's all taken care of digitally. There's no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. So if you're between the ages of 20 and 60 and you're looking for life insurance coverage, Ladder makes it quick and easy. I've found in my career that all too often, people who really need term insurance end up being sold whole life. Well, if your main goal is to provide insurance for the people in your life who depend on you, if you have young children, if you have a spouse, and your main concern is to make sure they're taken care of if something happens to you, you want to maximize the bang for the buck. You want to get the biggest death benefit you can for the smallest premium that you need to pay. And the way you achieve that is through term life. You don't need whole life. Don't make life insurance about investing. Keep your investing and your insurance separate so you can take the money you save by buying a more economical term policy and invest that. And then you'll have a better investment outcome and more appropriate insurance that does a better job of taking care of your loved ones if you're not there to do it yourself. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about taxes, although clearly taxes and inflation relate quite a bit. Because to the extent that the government doesn't tax its citizens enough relative to what it spends, and if it finances the gap by printing money, well, there's your inflation. And so the larger the deficit is and the more debt the Fed monetizes, the more inflation we have. And of course, inflation is really another form of taxation. It's a very insidious tax. It affects the people who could least afford to pay it the most. It's the people who spend more of their incomes or all of their incomes. If you're very rich and you're only spending a small percentage of your income, if the cost of living goes up, well, you can easily still afford to buy the things. You just have less money left over to save and invest. And that's a negative for society, but it's not a net negative necessarily for your own standard living because you're just paying the higher prices by just not having as much money uh, to save and invest. But if you're spending 100% of your money, your living expenses, and then those living expenses go up, well, you have no cushion to fall back on. I mean, unless you want to dip into your savings, which you can only do for so long. But of course, a lot of Americans have no savings. Not only are they living paycheck to paycheck, but they have nothing saved 
for a rainy day. So they just hope it never rains. Or if it does, they get by the government. But if those people who are paycheck to paycheck with no savings, if their cost of living goes up, they have to cut back, especially if you're seeing increases in food and energy and all the things that people have to have, where they have to cut back is in the things that they wanna have, all the discretionary purchases, they have to give those up. Rich people don't have to give those up if the cost of living goes up, but the middle class does, the working poor does. So this tax falls particularly hard on all the people that Joe Biden claims he doesn't wanna tax. Because remember, all the official tax hikes are aimed at everybody who makes more than $400,000 a year. But because even the Democrats are not willing to hit the rich with anywhere near the tax hikes that they were threatening or promising, depending on your perspective, it means that more of the Biden spending is going to fall on the middle class in the form of inflation. Because assuming that the spending plans are not tapered as much as the taxing plans. So if the government doesn't raise taxes as much as it hoped, but it still raises spending by an amount that's higher in relation to the tax side, the deficits are going to end up being that much bigger. And as a result, more of the government spending will be paid for by inflation by the Federal Reserve printing money, which again is why they're going to have to expand, not taper their quantitative easing program. So the extent to which Democrats are reluctant to tax the rich, but they still want to dole out all these goodies to their constituents, the burden of paying for them is going to surreptitiously fall on the backs of the middle class and the working poor through higher inflation. But what I want to talk about now is some of these modifications to the tax plan, because now we have some idea of what the Democrats, the congressional Democrats anyway, are proposing in the House. Now they got to kick it up to the U.S. Senate. But let me first start on the corporate side. So Biden was originally promising 28% corporate tax. And now the House Democrats are saying, we're not willing to go all the way to 28, but we'll support 26 and a half. Right now, the Republicans are still saying it's terrible because communist China is 25 percent. So the Democrats want to tax U.S. corporations at a higher rate than the communist Chinese tax theirs. But apparently 26 and a half percent was what they settled on. Interestingly, the capital gains and the tax on qualified dividends, that's where they're way short of the mark because they were promising for high income earners that they were going to eliminate the differential treatment between capital gains and qualified dividends and ordinary income. Now, they still want to raise the top ordinary income tax bracket on the rich to 39.6. That hasn't changed. So they got that. Top rate goes back to 39.6, which is exactly where it was before Donald Trump cut the rate, right? So that's where it was under Obama. So they want to go back there. They originally wanted capital gains to go from 20%, which is really 24% when you count that 3.9% Medicare surcharge. So they wanted to go from the 24% up to the 39.6. Instead, the congressional Democrats said they only want to raise the capital gains on the rich to 25%. Then, of course, you add the other 4%, makes it 29 but they want to leave a significant preferential treatment. They still want to tax capital gains and dividend income at a much lower rate than ordinary income. So they backed away from that. Even congressional Democrats were not willing to go for the complete elimination of the differential between ordinary income and capital gains. But what I want to talk about for the purpose of this podcast, because I think the corporate tax should be zero, right? There should be no corporate income tax. I mean, I don't think there should be any income tax at all, but to the extent that there's an income tax at all, just tax people when they get their dividends, when they sell their stock. Don't put the tax on the corporate level and have a double taxation, just tax the individual. Because suppose some of the shareholders are retired people living on a fixed income. Why are you taxing them? I mean, tax them at the individual rate. Maybe they don't even make enough money to qualify for the tax, but you're forcing them to pay the tax. Whereas if you have a billionaire who's collecting dividends, then tax him when he gets the dividend. Don't tax the corporation when it earns the money. Tax the owners when they get the money. This whole idea of having two levels of taxation, 
I think is wrong. And so the capital gains tax rate should be zero. But what I want to talk about on this podcast, because I, I don't have all day to discuss it, is the carried interest. Because here is something you would have thought, this is a slam dunk. This is a no-brainer. Because the Democrats always talk about eliminating the preferential treatment given to billionaire hedge fund managers. If you don't know what the carried interest is, it means that if you are managing somebody's money and part of your compensation is a percentage of the profits on money that you didn't actually invest, so you have a carried interest in your hedge fund, meaning all of your clients carried your interest for you because you didn't actually put any money in, right? Your clients put the money in. What you're doing is working. You're managing the portfolio, and the way you're getting compensated is you're getting a package. The common one is 2 in 20, and what that means is you get a 2% management fee, and you usually bill quarterly, but it's 2% to manage the money. Whether the money goes up, whether it goes down, right, profits or loss, the 2% is locked in. You get that just for managing the portfolio, even if you do a horrible job. You get 2%. The 20% is the incentive fee to do a good job. If you make a 10% return on top of that 2%, then you get to keep 20% of the profits for yourself as a fee for doing a good job. If you make 20% for your clients, well, now you're going to get 4% of that 20%. You did an even better job. You made your clients even more money. So now you make even more money yourself. And this, of course, is supposed to align the manager's interest with the shareholders, because the more money you make for your investors, the more money you make yourself. But clearly, carried interest is a form of compensation. I mean, there's nothing that stops the hedge fund managers from actually investing their own money in their own funds. And most of them do that too, right? So they already profit on legitimate capital gains where they're actually taking a risk with their own money and then they get a capital gain and they enjoy capital gains treatment. But why are they getting capital gains treatment on their carried interest? Because they're not putting up any money, they're not taking the risk, and they're earning that carried interest as a compensation for their services. So why is that taxed any different than their management fee? Because both are being paid in exchange for a service that's being rendered. And that is what the IRS is taxing. They're taxing the money you earn by providing a service. Well, hedge fund managers are providing a service and their compensation is in the form of a percentage of the profits that their services help generate. There is no reason that that should not be taxed as ordinary income. Now, again, I don't want anything taxed as ordinary income. If it were up to me, there would be no income tax. But to the extent that we have an income tax, it makes sense to me that it be fair, that it be even. I don't think the government should reward certain types of occupations rather than others. Because by taxing carried interest at capital gains instead of ordinary income, the government is telling you that it is more lucrative to be a hedge fund manager than to basically practice any other occupation. Because let's say you have two entrepreneurs. One guy decides to start a hedge fund and another guy, maybe he wants to open up some hotels. So one guy operates hotels, the other guy manages a hedge fund. And let's say both of these guys do really well and they make $10 million after their expenses. Not $10 million gross, but $10 million net because you always have to compare what people make after they pay all their expenses because some people could operate in a business with much higher overhead than other people. So let's look at the bottom line taxable income. So the guy that's operating the hotel chain, he makes $10 million dollars. And the guy that is running a hedge fund, he makes $10 million. Why should the guy operating the hedge fund have a maximum rate of 24% on his $10 million, but the guy who's running hotels, he has to pay 39.6 or 40.4, whatever it is when you add up all the stuff. There is no reason for the government to do that, to reward certain occupations over others. The government should not be micromanaging the economy because the government is steering people towards those occupations. Because if you're a very bright, ambitious guy and you want to maximize your after-tax income, the government is telling you, be a hedge fund manager. Don't get involved in some other industry that maybe would be more productive than running a hedge fund, 
But if you run a hedge fund because of the preferential tax treatment, you're going to make more money. It skews the playing field. So we get a less than optimal outcome because probably a lot of the people who choose the hedge fund industry, but for that carried interest preferential treatment, maybe they would be doing something else that would actually benefit society more than running a hedge fund. But it doesn't happen because of government. But the question is, why does it happen? Because there's not that many middle-class people who are running hedge funds, right? The Democrats, they all want to talk about how they want to get the rich, right? They want to soak the rich. It's not fair. The rich are exploiting the tax code. They're not paying their fair share. So why are all these Democrats, the Democrats control the House, the Democrats control the Senate. Why couldn't they put into this bill an elimination of this preference and say, you know what? The millionaires and the billionaires who manage these hedge funds, it's about time they started paying the same tax rate as everybody else. As all the other successful entrepreneurs from all different occupations, they're all paying ordinary income taxes on what they earn. We got to stop letting the billionaires pay a lower tax on what they earn. Why didn't they do it? The reason is because they're a bunch of hypocrites. That's why. The reason is you've got a lot of big hedge fund managers that as far as they're concerned, this is their only issue. You know, there are some people who are one issue voters on abortion, right? I want to know, are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? Nothing else matters because you got to be one or the other. And then if you're the right way, you're going to get my vote. Well, I think a lot of these hedge fund guys, it's just one issue that they care about. The preferential treatment for their carried interest in their hedge fund. And they dole out tremendous amounts of money to the politicians to support the carried interest. And that's why it never goes away. No matter how many people want to complain about it, none of these Democrats who are standing on their high horse pretending that they're so virtuous and they're so much more moral than everybody else, right? They're talking about this. The bottom line is they won't do anything about it because they care more about their own political contributions than apparently they do about inequality in society. And either they have no principles whatsoever or they're willing to sell their principles out to the highest bidder because that's what they're doing. So the hedge funds and a lot of these big guys are giving to Democrats too because they know it's the Democrats who are threatening to hit them with these higher taxes and those are the ones they have to bribe. So if you're wondering, hey, why do these big hedge funds give so much money to Democrat politicians? It's to make sure that those Democrat politicians don't raise their taxes. It's kind of like when you have the mafia, they want to go to these store owners and, hey, you got to pay me protection money. Well, to protect me from who? Well, well, from me, right? I'm going to torture store and beat the crap out of you unless you give me money. And so the store owner pays protection money to the mob so the mob won't hurt them. Well, that's basically the same racket that the government is running. The Democrats go to these rich hedge fund guys. It's like, hey, you want to keep your preferential treatment for carried interest? Well, you got to donate money to my campaign. And who knows what else they're doing under the table. And so they pay protection money to the Democrats. Of course, they don't want to admit that that's what they're doing. So maybe they try to pretend that, oh, no, I'm a Democrat. I really care about the people. But they care about themselves. They care about their own profits. And these guys are saving hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. You've got people, the highest earners in this country, people that are earning, some cases, more than a billion dollars a year. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in tax savings by having this preferential treatment. That gives them a lot of money to kick back to the politicians to make sure that this gravy train doesn't run dry. And that is what's going on here. And again, I am not advocating for higher taxes. I'm advocating for fair taxes. Now, some people might say, well, Peter, isn't that a bit hypocritical because you've moved to Puerto Rico and now you have lower taxes? Yeah, I did move to Puerto Rico for lower taxes and I encourage everybody to move here. So if you're managing a hedge fund and you come to Puerto Rico, well, you're going to get zero capital gains instead of the now 25%. And yes, by the way, if the capital gains rate is going up to 25%, then the hedge fund managers are still seeing an increase in their tax by that five percentage point, but they're still getting to keep that preferential treatment, which should not be there. Now, if there's preferential treatment 
for moving to Puerto Rico, well, that's fine because anybody who moves here, no matter which occupation you choose, is going to get the same preferential treatment. My point is that you shouldn't be rewarded for earning a living in one particular way, hedge fund manager, versus earning your living in any other way, especially since, in general, only very rich people earn a living by owning a hedge fund. So you're talking about an occupation that only the rich people even practice, and now they're getting this huge special tax break. This is the exact type of tax break that you would expect the Democrats to be most interested in eliminating, yet every time they have the opportunity to do it, they don't. And again, it's all because of politics. They are getting paid by the beneficiaries of this tax break to make sure it doesn't go away. And because the benefits are so great and the number of people who earn those benefits are so few, that's where you get the political power because those people really work and coordinate to give the donations to make sure that their special interest is never sacrificed, no matter how much political grandstanding is going on about soaking the rich. They're never going to soak them by getting rid of the carried interest tax break. Although the hedge fund managers are going to get hit with one other tax, I didn't mention, there is a new 3% surcharge that the Democrats are talking about imposing on incomes of greater than $5 million. And so a lot of hedge fund guys would fall into that category. And so if you include the 3% surcharge and the 3.9% Obamacare on top of the 39.6, the new top tax bracket in the U.S. will be 46.4%. That's pretty high. And of course, if you live, let's say, in New York City, you would be facing a 61.2% marginal tax rate between federal government, state government, and city government, assuming that they don't reinstall the SALT deductions. Now, there is nothing about the SALT deductions in the current proposal. I think that they're going to end up bringing those deductions back or certainly allowing a lot more of the state and local taxes to be deducted than is now because a lot of the Democrats from the high tax states like New York are threatening that they will not support any plan, any tax hike, unless it also includes that tax cut for their constituents who were reamed under Trump because they lived in these high tax states. So I think we're going to end up getting something there. But assuming that there is no relief and the current law on the caps on the state and local taxes remains in effect, you're looking at a marginal tax rate of 61.2% in New York City. I mean, that is theft. That's not taxation. That's not even tyranny. That's beyond that. I mean, I've talked about it on this podcast, but a lot of people don't realize that medieval serfs, what made them a serf was that they had to turn over 25% of what they produce to their lord and master. So they only got to keep 75% and they were basically taxed by the lords 25%. And that qualified them with the lowly status of a serf. Well, what does that make an American? I mean, an American who is turning over 61.2% when the serfs only turned over 25%, the U.S. government is treating its citizens far worse than the lords ever treated their serfs. So, I mean, this is a horrible uh, situation. The founding fathers never envisioned anything like this in America. When we revolted against the British, it was over taxation without representation, but the level of taxation was peanuts compared to what we're doing now. There is no way we would have put up with anything close to this from King George. In fact, King George wouldn't have had the nerve to even try something like this. In fact, if King George had tried to impose an income tax, all the colonists would have revolted. I think as it stands now, only one third of the nation, of the colonies, was really in favor of the revolution. Believe me, if King George tried to send some IRS agents to the colonies, it would have been 100%. Everybody would have wanted revolution. But, you know, if you want to emancipate yourself, there's one way to do it right now, and that is join me down here in Puerto Rico where you're turning over 4%, not 61.2%, but 4% on ordinary income. And then your capital gains rate is zero, not whatever they're going to end up raising it to 
after this bill finally makes its way through both houses of Congress and ends up getting signed by the president. Also suspiciously absent from this deal, there is no plan to make all of the income subject to the payroll tax. That was something that Biden talked about on the campaign trail, making the rich people pay the 12.5% Social Security tax on all their income. Because right now, you know, it's maxed out when they hit a certain amount. So they were supposed to clobber them with that whole tax. That never made it out. They're not doing that. The elimination of the stepped-up basis, thankfully, that's not there. The inheritance tax is already bad enough. This would have added insult to injury. But apparently, there wasn't enough Democrat support for the elimination of the stepped-up basis. So the tax hikes are not nearly as onerous as they could have been. Now, the question is, what is going to happen to the spending? There's a $3.5 trillion spending package that was supposed to rely on these tax increases for part of its financing. Obviously, they're not going to get nearly as much revenue as they hoped for. And by the way, there are tax cuts that have been built in with these tax hikes. So some of the tax hikes, that money's not even going to be there because it comes in one door and out the other because the government is cutting taxes on some people, lower income earners, as it's raising taxes on the higher income earners. So they're losing some of this extra revenue through the cracks. So the question is how much extra money will actually be there to cover this $3.5 trillion spending bill? Now, Joe Manchin is the Democrat in the Senate who is more moderate, and he is basically saying, no, I will not support $3.5 trillion but he did say he would support $1.5 trillion. So basically, he said he supports a spending bill. The question is, what's the price tag? And so he's just in negotiation mode now. And so my thinking is, to appease Manchin, the number may come in slightly below the $3.5 trillion, but it will be a lot closer to the $3.5 trillion that Manchin says he doesn't want than the $1.5 trillion he claims he does want. And in fact, one way they may do it is instead of saying this is a 10-year plan, they can say it's a nine or an eight-year plan. And so then they can still spend the same amount of money per year. It'll just have a smaller price tag because apparently they'll say we're only going to do it for eight years. But none of that really matters because nothing they do now is binding on a Congress eight years from now. So they always want to pretend that, oh, we're spreading this money out over a long period of time. But the reality is they only have control over what they spend right now. So in order to make the price tag seem smaller, they may reduce the number of years, but still end up spending the same amount of money over the next three or four years than they would have spent under the bigger number. So it's still going to mean more deficit spending. And so if we end up getting lower tax hikes on the rich, and we still get big spending increases to pay for benefits for the poor and the middle class, then we have, as I said earlier, a much larger portion of the spending financed by the Fed, by money printing, by inflation. And I know a lot of politicians think that if we get the money from the Fed, it's free because all I have to do is create it and it doesn't cost us anything. That's the most expensive money we get, especially for the poor and the middle class who are disproportionately impacted by that inflation tax. Also, one more thing I wanted to mention is today is that runoff election in California, the gubernatorial recall, Gavin Newsom having to fend off a recall. I talked about this election on my last podcast, and I was incorrect. I had gotten some bad information on what it takes to get rid of Newsom. I thought that if there was enough votes to recall him, that he was still among the candidates to replace him so that if he beat out all the replacement candidates, he could be recalled and reelected at the same time. I don't know why I thought that, but I was wrong. The reality is if over 50% of Californians vote to get rid of Newsom, he's gone, right? And so one of the other candidates in the race would become the next governor And that candidate doesn't need a plurality. They just need to have more votes in aggregate than any other candidate. And since there's, what, 30 candidates or something like that, Larry Elder is in the lead. If it were just Elder and one other person, he probably wouldn't be in the lead because I don't know that there's enough libertarian uh, Republicans out there that Elder would win. But in a really wide field, he can certainly get more votes than anybody else. And so if Newsom 
is recalled, then Larry Elder can easily be the next governor of the state of California, which would be fantastic news for both the state of California and for the nation. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to happen if you believe the polls, and normally the polls are right, because Newsom has a pretty good lock on not being recalled. And I think the prospect of having Larry Elder as a governor has probably got a lot of Democrats thinking twice about recalling Newsom. Even if they don't like him, they think they would dislike Larry Elder more, so they have to hold their nose and go into the voting booth and vote not to recall just to make sure that California stays Democratic. (laughs) 